but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Today, I'm speaking with Kyle Kowalski, who might be one of the most well-read humans and certainly the most relentlessly curious human that I've ever come across. In fact, as he shares in this episode, he believes that his purpose, or ikigai, in his life is to synthesize lifelong learning that catalyzes human development. So cool. And as the title of this episode suggests, we nerded out on so many great topics. We talked about his crisis and burnout, how that transformed him, discovering the concept of intentional living, how he researched and then created Ikigai 2.0, and some of the myths associated with the earlier versions, how he's navigated the four stages of ego development theory, and how in his view they act like filters of reality. Uh, His thoughts on the idea of the birth lottery, and so much more. If you've been enjoying these conversations, it would be so appreciated if you take a moment to open it up in either Spotify or Apple and give it a quick review or rating. It helps others find the podcast, helps me with getting new guests, and it feels really great to receive. Also, if you have any reflections or suggestions for new speakers, please do say hi on Twitter or email. You can find the links below. All right, without any further ado for me, let's dive in. Okay, welcome to the Curious Humans podcast, Kyle. Thanks for having me, Johnny. Glad to be here. How, how are you feeling in three words? Oh, wow. Uh, let's get it down to as simple as possible, right? I would say I feel good. <laughs> and that and, and there's and there's a lot there's a lot to that, right? It's uh it's kind of like a like a physical check-in of like I feel physically good, my mood is good. Um but it's also a kind of a surrender and acceptance thing of right of like life is good. Like in this moment, no complaints, no problems. Uh looking forward to this conversation. So it's a, uh, it's kind of a multi-layered, uh, all is good. Life, life is <laughs> <laughs> beautiful and multi-contextual. Good. I, I like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So I, I think we're going to talk about a bunch of things today, but, um, I'd love to begin by asking, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, do you have a story about something that you were curious about? Yeah. So I think, uh, I grew up super shy and introverted to the point where people, even like my cousins would ask my parents or my grandparents is Kyle mute. Like, does he Mm. speak at all? Like I was that shy and introverted. So I spent a lot of time, you know, up here in my head. Um, and I spent a lot of time as like an outside observer kind of observing life. Um, this is something that it's funny because my mom told me this in my thirties, um, that, uh, I've kind of always been that way since, since I was born, as far as she remembers, you know, I've been this kind of shy, quiet outside observer kid kind of trying to soak in life and, and figure out what's going on, uh, from kind of like an external perspective. So a lot of curiosity from that sense, right. Where it's like, what, what is life? What's going on? And how do I fit into this? And, and how do I figure things out? Um, of course, a lot of these things are dots that I've connected in recent years, right? Because when you're in the midst of it, you don't really realize what's going on, especially when you're a younger kid, you're going through all the socialization and conditioning and and nature and nurture and growing up and things like that. Um, and you're one with your mind at that, at that point, um, and your mind's developing and and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, I would say I've, I've always been curious. I grew up in a artistic 
household. Um, so my whole dad's side of the family, including my dad, tons of cousins, my best friend even, and myself, um, I went through, I thought I was going to actually pursue graphic design in life. So I actually went through high school um, in graphic design, doing art projects. I was up until you know the wee hours of the morning doing, doing art projects and realized that wasn't a sustainable path forward once I got to college. But um, but yeah, a lot of my life growing up, if I think about my childhood, you know, I've, I, I can't say I have any complaints, right? My, my parents were great. I totally lucked out. I, I say I won the lottery of birth in, mm. in, a, lot of, uh, in a lot of senses because um, I just had really great loving parents. Um, and I was raised in a household that prioritized uh, imagination and creativity um, you know, I was always playing with action figures and we had a lot of like dress up, like, you know, just play time, like imaginary time and things like mm. that. Uh, a lot, just a lot of art projects, whether it was for actual like art classes or school or just for fun, you know, I'd create my own comic books, do my own drawings and, uh, watercolor paintings and things like that. Mm. Um, so the curiosity, I think, I think was kind of baked in for me at an, at a young age, more from like a visual arts perspective. Um, and just like imaginary thinking and, and coming up with things in my head and stuff like that. Um, but it wasn't until later in life where I was able to kind of put the dots together to realize that, oh, I actually, <laughs> you know, had this great childhood growing up and then things like that, because you just don't realize it in the midst of it. Mm, yeah. And were there any stories or books or even like comic books that really resonated with you as a kid? Hmm. So this is kind of interesting because so much of my life now is dedicated to learning, which is primarily like reading, but I wasn't a big reader growing up. I mean, I read a lot of, I still read a lot of fiction, whether it was for school or even for fun, I guess. So like all the goosebumps books and I was really into X-Men and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and you know, that whole you know, being born in the mid eighties and growing up through the nineties and things like that. Anything that was big during those years, I was, I was into in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, I don't know that I had a really, you know, singular pivotal moment or even like fictional story or narrative or myth or anything like that, that I kind of gravitated to, to say like, this is, this was like a pivotal moment for me. It mm -hmm. was kind of a, an, you know, an amalgamation of all of these different influences, uh, just weaving into my mind uh, over time. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I'm, um, I'm personally always curious to hear how others find their way through existential crises. So <laughs> I, I'd love to um, kind of, if you could paint a picture for listeners, like what, what flavor of existential crisis did you experience? And what was that like for you? And, and I believe this was kind of like 10, 10 years ago or so. Yeah. So this was, let's see. So I guess later this year will be the eight year anniversary of my crisis. So it was in late 2015 okay. and I was about, so it was about eight years ago I and I was about to have an anniversary for your crisis. That's great. I do. I do. <laughs> and not, and not only celebrate. that, that's great. <laughs> and, and not only that, but, um, so that later this year will be eight years since the crisis. And I was also, when I had my crisis, I was eight years into my marketing career. Okay. So it's kind of, it's kind of this fun, like middle ground right now of eight years on either side, but it was such a pivotal moment and I didn't realize it at the time again, you know, in the midst of it, but it was such a pivotal moment that I now refer to periods in life as pre pre-crisis and post-crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and now my <laughs> mind kind of works in a way where since the crisis, I can kind of point to, you know, specific time periods and years and, and, and even like down to the month sometimes of like, oh, that's when this happened, or that's when I learned about this concept, or that's when I had this big mm -hmm. realization or epiphany or aha moment. 
meanwhile, <laughs> in the 30 years pre-crisis, <laughs> so much of my life was a blur, right? I hadn't mm -hmm. questioned anything about life or about myself. I was just on this kind of default path um, that I kind of unconsciously stumbled into. Um, like I said, you know, I thought I was going to go through this graphic design path and do something artistic uh, with my life. But sure enough, um, I ended up defaulting to like general business and marketing in college. No conscious memory of why that was. It's probably a process of elimination thing of like, well, I can't be up until 2 or 3 a.m. doing art projects because I'm also supposed to be running cross country and track here in college. I got a partial scholarship to do that. So I was okay. like, okay, I'm going to prioritize that and I can't do this stuff. So, you know, process of elimination. How about general business administration? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I kind of stumbled into my major, you know, from the get go. And then four years later, or a little bit after that, I stumbled into my first marketing job and and then I woke up eight years later and wondered how I got there, <laughs> mm, mm. right? Because it's like, you know, without a lot of questioning, one decision can lead to another, to another, to another. And then sure enough, you wake up at some point in life. If you're, if you're lucky enough, um, it might take uh, what um, <laughs> I've just been learning about this concept called transformative learning. And uh, the founder of the concept, Jack Mesereau, talks about it. It all kicks off with a disorienting dilemma. Huh. So I'm sure, I'm sure you That's can resonate. Phrase. Yeah. And I'm sure you can resonate yeah. with this too from your own life journey. But, um, he talks about how it can be a big, like epochal, he calls it like, you know, sudden crisis moment, whether it's a, an identity crisis, midlife crisis, mm -hmm. spiritual crisis, existential crisis, you name it, or mm -hmm. it can be a sudden or sorry, a, a gradual kind of incremental slow, you know, uncovering of this mm -hmm. kind of just disorienting discomfort in your life. So it can, mm -hmm. it can be, it can come about a number of different ways. Um, but for me, what I remember specifically was this was eight years into my career. I was working at a global apparel brand at this point in time. And my job, <laughs> I was hired on to reinvent the brand identity of this brand that was over a hundred years old. Hmm. And sure enough, here I was killing myself with 60 to 80 hour plus work weeks. And I just remember, you know, going to bed and this was like six months straight of these long, insane work weeks. Mm. And I just remember going to bed one night at like two or 3 AM after, you know, coming home from a normal day of work and then getting back online at nine or 10 PM working until two or 3 AM total mm. workaholic, busyaholic. And I just remember, you know, staring at the ceiling of my bedroom, not being able to fall asleep and starting to ask some of the big questions. And I think mm. it probably started with something along the lines of, Am I, am I really here to sell people more stuff they don't need? Mm. And so this was kind of interesting because I get, this was my fourth marketing job in, in those eight years, but I had, I had worked my way through in those marketing jobs. I had worked on consumer packaged goods stuff and business to business software stuff and pharma, and then all the way to fashion. And it took, it took, you know, working at a, a fashion company or an apparel company to finally put the pieces together of the burnout hours plus the lack of purpose. I just could mm -hmm. not up to that point, the, even just doing the marketing job and, and working in the advertising industry wasn't enough until I started working in fashion and apparel where I was like, do I really need to be selling people more stuff? Is that really why I'm here? Um, and that's what kicked off the existential crisis was the burnout plus mm -hmm. the lack of purpose combined. I call it like a one, two punch of both mm -hmm. because I had worked mm -hmm. high hours before, but the lack of purpose didn't really hit me until, um, I was working in the, in the apparel industry. And, um, and that, that's what planted the seed for the last eight years now since the crisis. Wow. It's interesting. You call it one, two punch. Like I'd almost imagine that the burnout is 
<clears throat> in some ways, like when you're in that kind of zombified state, it almost inoculates you against asking some of the bigger questions because you're, you're like in the, in this kind of like dorsal shutdown almost, and you're like sleepwalking through life. And and often it's when people do take breaks or you know when something happens that forces them to have a break when those questions start to kind of like bubble up. So I, I almost see the workaholism as like a defense mechanism against really feeling the purple, the purposelessness or the meaninglessness of, of life. Does that resonate as well? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I've, I've wondered this too, because if you go a deeper level, this is something that didn't even occur to me to the last two or three years since now really is what, what shaped my mind up to that point in my life to even respond to my crisis in the way that I did. Right. Because I was able to, I, I treated my crisis like it was a personal problem to solve and I was able to respond to it in a pro, pro like a productive, proactive, positive way. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, other people, it can really derail your life for years. Um, it can, it can obviously lead to some really, you know, dark places for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And so that has been an interesting kind of second layer down to dive into is how did I ever get that mind in the first place that allowed me to respond to the crisis the way I did? Um, because I, I thought I had questioned everything about life, you know, during my crisis or in the, you know, couple <laughs> years after that, but I never even questioned my own mind that, uh, allowed me to respond the way I did, but mm. I could have really used your, your course. Obviously I took your course, uh, late last year and it was uh -huh. super helpful, but I could have really used it, uh, you know, back when, when I was going through all this stuff, because you mentioned kind of like a zombified state. And that is exactly, of course, I didn't have any of this language, right? I didn't know anything about my nervous system or could articulate anything about dorsal shutdown or anything like that back mm -hmm. in, back in the day when I was going through this. But, um, again, another just totally random kind of, like I mentioned, like going to bed and staring at the ceiling and not being able to fall asleep and asking these questions. Mm -hmm. Another random memory that I have from that time period was I remember coming home from lunch one day during work, which was just a normal thing. I would come home and let our dogs out over lunch. And, um, I remember so many times coming home, this is like, you know, noon on a given work day, nothing special. I would come home and I would let the dogs out. And I remember standing, it could be a completely like blue sky, warm, perfect day. Everything is, is good otherwise. But I remember feeling like a zombie. Like mm -hmm. I even, I, in, in the moment, even I remember like, this doesn't, this just can't be right. This can't be what life is about. Mm -hmm. I would come home and let the dogs out and just feel like a, a complete zombie. Um, and so that, that is like a complete night and day difference versus how I feel like I'm living now. But mm. yeah, I could have, I could have really used your, your course at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a really interesting question of that. Um, I, I, I love the phrase post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic growth. And it's like, what are some of the variables that allow some people in these like crises to kind of take a introspective, proactive approach and emerge the other side stronger? and the others who kind of get stuck in, in that place. Um, do you have any sense of like what maybe allowed you to move through it in a, in a productive way in, in the end? I've, I've thought a lot about it and I, I don't yet at least have, an, have a like very clear answer for what it was because part of me wants to say, you know, my mind in that state was, given I hadn't questioned anything about life or my life or anything for 30 years, really, 
which means in a sense, I was the byproduct of my lottery of birth and my nature and my nurture and my socialization and my conditioning and my programming and all of these things. And it was kind of just playing itself out because I hadn't gotten to any type of self-questioning stage yet in life. And then all the self-authoring and self-transforming and things like that. If you go from like Keegan's model or Suzanne Cook Reuter's ego development theory or, or you name it, you know, mm -hmm. Suzanne Cook Reuter's model of psychological development, that kind of middle stage of post-conventional development starts with self-questioning. Mm -hmm. So up, so those first 30 years in lieu or in lack of any self-questioning, that was really kind of like the, the outcome of just my conditioning and socialization up to that point. So on one hand, it makes you question things like, how did my mind get to a place where, you know, we, we had everything on paper, right? You know, the, the job title, the salary, the house, the car, the, all that stuff. And externally, an outside observer would say, like, you've made it, you know, this is, this is what life is all about kind of thing. But for me, none of that mattered with a lack of purpose. Like you could, you could list off the, all those and a million other pleasures and it would not offset a lack of purpose. So part of me is, is wondering, you know, how did my mind get developed in a way just from my socialization conditioning that, mm -hmm. that it, um, it prioritized passion and purpose so highly versus mm -hmm. like all those material and, and luxury things that, you know, we kind of call the American dream these days from like a financial and, and material perspective. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Like, how did I, you know, I didn't choose to have a crisis, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, how did my mind ever get to that place in the first place? And then how <laughs> was it, you know, wired in a way that it could pro like proactively and productively respond? And mm -hmm. I still don't have answers necessarily to those questions. It just seems to be how I was naturally wired, at least at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, it just seemed like a personal problem that I had to solve. Um, so I guess it was, and it was just a natural thing for me to just start asking questions and seeking out the answers, regardless of what those answers were. So mm. trying not to prejudge the answers that. that I might come across. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, it's it, on one hand, it's like being open and honest. And in some cases, obviously being brutally honest with yourself, right? You're trying to minimize any biases or narrative biases or self biases that you have self-serving biases. Um, but then on the flip side, it's being willing to ask those, those hard questions. Uh, I've heard it phrased as like meeting life face to face. Mm. And that kind of has always resonated with me because I think up until that point, I hadn't done that. And at going through the crisis, it was like, okay, now I want to do anything possible to not delude myself further. So <laughs> I'm going to ask questions as mm. honestly as I can. I'm going to ask any question, no matter how weird or abnormal or whatever it may be. And then I'm going to try to seek out the answer. And, and obviously through that process, there's so many unanswerable questions. If you, it's like the whole five whys process of if you ask why enough times, it doesn't take that many times to get to an unanswerable mystery. But what you do get through this whole process is a newfound perspective on so many things in life, a newfound perspective on yourself, on others. Um, and even in, in lieu of an answer, that perspective is completely life transforming at the end of the mm. day. Yeah, I love that so much. It reminds me of something that I I went to a live workshop with uh, Liz Gilbert a few years ago, and she talked about she was talking about like the tyranny of passion, and and she was she was on a on a rant basically like saying telling other people to find their passion was ridiculous advice because if someone has their passion, you don't need to tell them to like keep doing it because it's that they just will, but if they don't, then it's like it's basically making people feel 
incompetent and useless. But her her like answer to that was following your curiosity, which is, mm. it sounds like is exactly what you did. You just found all these questions that didn't have obvious answers. And you were willing to to sit in that space of uncertainty and that like that not knowing and following those threads, um, which is which is amazing. And I, I'm curious how what, what was the journey from kind of that point to starting slow and starting the community and the website and the project that you or many projects that you, you have right now? Yeah. So one of the big things that I discovered in the midst of my crisis, so late 2015, was the concept of intentional living. And I use that as a kind of an umbrella term that encapsulates things like simple living, slow living, uh, minimalism, decluttering. Uh, you could even throw financial independence and lifestyle design and things like that all under this big umbrella of intentional living. But <laughs> the reason it was so such an epiphany for me was it was the complete flip. Uh, first of all, I had no idea that people on the planet were living like this, <laughs> that people were intentionally, people were intentionally downshifting or spending, you know, less money to, to be able to save more money or retire early or, um, you know, any of this type of stuff. I, I assumed that everybody, again, keep in mind, I had done no questioning of anything, basically no deep questioning of anything up to this point in my life. So I just assumed everybody was on the same path of Western society that I was on of lifestyle inflation and keeping up with the Joneses and, um, you know, all those types of things where you get the job, the better job to spend more money or repeat, um, you know, get the house, the bigger house, the whole deal. I just, I just thought everyone was doing that. And, um, so intentional living for me was, and this was probably nearing the end of my, my six week acute portion of my crisis where I, I just started asking, you know, the world every question I could and somehow stumbled across these things. But it presented this alternative or contrarian path to me that not only did I see as like an antidote or cure to my busy, busyaholic life and workaholic life. It was like, oh, people are doing the opposite of what I'm doing. Can I somehow incorporate that to, to free myself from all this busyness? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I wondered, because again, remember I stumbled into marketing as a major and marketing as a career and all these things. I feel like I was like an entrepreneur at heart and had all these entrepreneurial dreams, but somehow suppressed them or repressed them for a decade of a marketing career. Mm -hmm. Um, and so all these things were kind of coming together, but, um, but yeah, so through that, um, I kind of went through or had the aha moments of that all this intentional living stuff was possible. And I had no idea that it was possible before. So in late 2015, I bought the domain name, but I continued to work in my full-time marketing career for another two and a half years after my crisis, which were actually rougher years than the crisis itself. Mm. Because what I, what happened was I spent all my free time still learning about life and about myself and trying to find purpose and, asking the, all the, who I, who am I questions and things like that. And the more I learned, the more it conflicted with how I was still living. Yeah. So things were changing, you know, in my mind, um, perspectives were changing. I was kind of moving into those post-conventional stages of psychological development, like the early stages of it. And yet I was still living this conventional life in terms of behavior and action and showing up to my nine to five and all things like that. And it took two and a half years of what I call just increasing cognitive dissonance where mm -hmm. that, that gap just got so big that it broke finally. Also known it, it, as like tolerance for bullshit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Other people I think call it like divine discontent, which sounds a little bit uh -huh. nicer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, tolerance for bullshit is definitely uh, applicable as well. But uh, yeah, it finally reached a boiling point and breaking point. And, 
and uh, I just had to finally give this entrepreneurship thing a go. And so bought the domain name in, in late 2015. Uh, first post on the website was about a year and a half after that. It was about the very first post was about digital minimalism. Um, and, uh, and probably the first 50 to 100 posts on the website are all about intentional living in some way, shape or form. So it all kicked off with that. I mean, that's why slow is called slow. I mean, to begin with is because of the influence that slow living had on me when it, when the seed was first planted mm -hmm. these days, I it's evolved so much that I like to use it as an acronym of something like synthesizing lots of worldly wisdom. Oh, I love that. I didn't know <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, I've tried uh, to, instead of completely rebranding the whole thing, uh, I've tried to somehow, uh, you know, keep, keep, uh, an, an elegant pivot. I like yeah, that. <laughs> but the idea, but the idea still is that, you know, for me, it all started with intentional living. Intentional living for me is what gave me the, the, the shift from an external focus in life to the beginnings of an internal focus in life. And that shift has just, you know, opened up the space internally to be able to think about things like life purpose and more psychological and spiritual things. And it, it's kind of that opening gateway into everything else. So mm. Um, I've stuck with the name because I still think it's step one of the journey, or at least it was for me. But uh, yeah, since then, Slow now has over 500 posts on the website and it's evolved a ton over the years. And um, if anything, today I'm, I'm following my curiosity maybe even more than back then because I'm almost doing it more as like, you know, the more threads that I pull, the more they connect to other threads and you see how right. all those threads are interconnected. And so it's kind of like this ongoing unfolding of, you know, I can't remember if it was a John Muir quote or someone else who said like, you know, you pull on one thread and it's interconnected to all of the John other Muir. ones, but yeah. Yeah. But, um, but that's exactly how I kind of feel now is that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of dabbling in everything from biology to neuroscience, to psychology, to philosophy, to spirituality, to you name it and seeing how all of those dots connect in, in some way. Mm, that's, that's amazing. Um, do you have any thoughts on the the concept of the the ikigai? Because I, I saw you you've written about that quite a bit on the website, and it, it seems to me like a word that's um, maybe shared a lot out of context. Do you have it like do you have a different perspective on it, or like how do you think about that that concept? Yeah, so this was this was eye opening for me because, like most people who have heard of ikigai, and if you haven't heard of it, the easiest thing to do is just to, to search the name a or i k i g a i, and you'll see a four circle Venn diagram that pops up, and it's been this viral meme for a number of years now, where the four circles are what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can get paid for. Mm -hmm. And I even had this four circle Venn diagram printed out and hung up on my wall in 2016 when I was trying to find purpose. And so I tried mm -hmm. to use this framework to, to figure things out, but, uh, just the way, just the way that my mind seems to be wired, which is like what Howard Gardner calls a synthesizing mind. The, I guess it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, uh, you can't just find a concept and, and then just accept it for what it is. <laughs> what I, what I tend to do is if I uncover something that seems interesting, I then exhaust everything I can about that concept. And what that naturally leads to is doing a bunch of myth busting about the concept, realizing like, you know, these things aren't accurate or how did this even originate? Um, and so I did that with Ikigai over the course, off and on over the course of five years, essentially from crisis to maybe 2020 or so when I, when I put everything I had learned into an ebook. Um, mm -hmm. but what I learned was that 
the concept of Ikigai, the viral concept that we're all very familiar with, doesn't actually accurately represent the concept of Ikigai as it's used in Japan. Um, and in terms of like a reason for being and things like that. So one of the big myths is that, you know, money is one of those four circles, what you can be, mm -hmm. what you can be paid for. Mm -hmm. And so that had to be wiped. So I, I basically, I took the four circles and I'm like, okay, I need to rework this based on all the things I've learned about the truth of Ikigai in Japan. How do I kind of put both together? How do I take the, the meme that everyone's familiar with, but you know, evolve it in a way. And I, I literally call my version Ikigai 2.0 because I consider it an evolution mm. versus like something starting from scratch. Um, but I tried to rework it in a way that better matches the reality and the truth of Ikigai in Japan. And so money is not a main consideration. It's about your reason for being or, or purpose first. And, and also you can have multiple Ikigais. They can change over the course of a lifetime. Um, it's, it doesn't have to be like this one hero's journey quest to figure out the mm -hmm. one thing that's going to be the one thing forever. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in, in my version, money is a byproduct. So this was a big aha moment for me where, um, I got this from Maria Popova of brain pickings or the marginalian where she talks about everything she's ever done on brain pickings, which is over 15 years now yeah. is it is, and has been personal development first and business development as a byproduct. And that really resonated with me. Other people have said, I think Jim Collins had something similar. He has something called a hedgehog concept. Uh, but I took all these similar concepts and kind of synthesized them together into Ikigai 2.0. And essentially what you do is you figure out your passion and purpose and every, and how you can give yourself to the world. Uh, you figure out all that stuff first. Mm -hmm. And then once you're actually living that, you might be able to have like a lever that you can pull if you want to optionally as a byproduct where you can make some money from it. And maybe one mm -hmm. purpose makes money and others don't and things like that. There are a million different ways to do it. But, um, but that concept in terms of how it evolved is how I ended up figuring out what I consider my own purpose. And that's the, it's the framework and model that I still recommend to people today. Mm, amazing. I love that. And I, I'm curious in the, especially in the early years, how did you navigate the question of money? Because I know a lot of, I used to work at Escape the City, which was an organization designed to help people to find, you know, jobs they love and to find their purpose. And the, the story or the, the thinking around running out of money, particularly after quitting your job and, you know, having that forcing factor, like I need to pay the rent, I need this, this website, this project to, to pay the bills. How did that present in your path? It was kind of like a phased approach of probably five different things that happened over the course of a few years that all okay. contributed to an evolving relationship with money, but they were mm. all super important. So one of them was um, initially, once I discovered intentional living, I was like, because I had these entrepreneurial dreams and other things I wanted to pursue outside my career. And so I thought initially I was going to, I called it fund the fun. So I was going to take That's my great. day job I was going to take my day job paycheck and use it as the funding for all the side passion projects that I wanted to pursue. Mm -hmm. And I was going to just try to do that indefinitely as long as I could. Obviously for me, that only lasted two and a half years post-crisis that I, that I ended up doing that. But that did allow me to build up uh, what I also call an entrepreneurial runway, mm -hmm. which is being able to save some money um, to be able to live off of if you're going to really like pull the bandaid off or take the yeah. leap of faith or whatever into entrepreneurship. Important. Yeah. Because everyone's starting at zero, right? Assuming you're bootstrapping and funding yourself and you're not taking venture capital or something like that, then mm -hmm. you're, everyone has to start at zero with an audience of one, which is themselves. So, um, I kind of had at least a few years where I could build a little bit of an entrepreneurial runway. And then in mid 2017, 
I also discovered the fire movement, which was essentially the equivalent of what intentional living was for me about like my physical stuff and my relationship with time and things like that. The fire mm -hmm. movement, financial independence, retire early was that equivalent for me in terms of money. So that same aha moment of this alternative contrarian path of intentional living, I had no idea people were living like that. Mm -hmm. I had no idea people were like saving their money and hacking money and doing all these interesting things with money from a, from a financial perspective uh, in order to be able to retire early. And I remember coming across one person who had retired in their late 20s after like four or six years of work, which I thought was just mind boggling. And then, of course, <laughs> I think the, the most... Uh, the most impactful people for me, maybe that I have come across in that community, have been like Vicki Robin, co-author of uh, Your Money or Your Life, and then uh, Jacob Lund Fisker, who created Early Retirement Extreme, and um, and he's been living on seven thousand dollars a year total, all in taxes, insurance, like everything, all in seven thousand dollars a year total for over a decade now, hmm. and and I don't think he had ever made more than maybe like 60 or $75,000 USD, um, like in his actual career. So it just gives you the, the whole different perspective on what people are doing with money. And if you can get, I, I call this entrepreneurial math, where this is the benefit of, of just simple math of, uh, the lower or the, the lower your expenses, the less money you need to cover your expenses and the less money you need to make. Therefore the higher likelihood you're going to have of being successful as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. because then you can kind of do it, anything if you don't have to make a ton of money from what you're doing, at least from the get-go, right? If you can get your lifestyle yeah. in a way where, where you can do that. Mm -hmm. So all of those were super impactful for me. And then, um, and then, yeah, I guess, uh, it, how to, how to dive into, uh, entrepreneurship or solopreneurship from a money perspective is probably one of the top two questions <laughs> that I get. <laughs> I think the top two questions I get are probably how to navigate an existential crisis. I feel like I'm uh -huh. going through that. Let me share my story with you and, and bounce it uh -huh. off of you. And then the other one is how do I, how do I take the leap? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but not everybody, I, I kind of always mention this because not everybody might want to be an entrepreneur or solopreneur or anything like that. Some people might want to go through this whole process and craft their purpose and figure that out to be able to do what they call job crafting at their current job. So that's kind of staying in your current company, even your current role and crafting it in a way where your roles and responsibilities kind of match your, your purpose a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you change roles within the same company. Uh, maybe you change companies, maybe you change careers. So there are all these different levels and layers of how you can incorporate this into your life. And the money piece, some people may do the whole thing and say, you know what, I accept that I'm going to have to work some type of job just to cover the money piece, but then I'm going to free up all my free time to pursue all these other purposes and passions. And that's fine too. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so th there, there's no right answer. And I think everybody just needs to go through this process in a unique way for them to figure out what is going to work best for them. Yeah. I think that's really well said. I think the key really is this word. You've mentioned it a bunch of times, intentionality. I think it's like bringing that lens of intentionality to all of the different areas from money to job to career and, and sitting with these questions until the answers reveal themselves. And they, you know, the more intentional path, like you say, it might mean staying in, in a nine to five job, but one that is aligned with, you know, people that light you up and a, a kind of shared mission like that. That's, that's amazing. But I think that the, the trap is when, <clears throat> like you say, people are on that default kind of treadmill and not really questioning the the different pieces of their life. Um, mm. Yeah. So I, I'd love to, I'd love to dive into the word like four, 
I, I frame them as like big ideas that I took from from reading your post, and, and I've been following along for for several years now. Um, and the first idea was one that you've mentioned already is this idea of ego development theory. And um, I'm familiar with with Keegan's model in particular, but I know there's there's others out there. And maybe you could share firstly for listeners, kind of briefly what this model aims to do. And uh, and I'm particularly curious in what you call a stage four question, which you framed as how do I embody wisdom, which is really a central question of what I'm exploring with this podcast, what I'm exploring in my own life. So, so what have you learned about the kind of that and, and what is ego development theory? Why do you think it's so important? Yeah, great questions. Uh, let's start with the ego development theory one. So the reason, well, I guess to even back up before that, so human development theories in general, most people have heard of something, you know, like uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, that seems to be a pretty common one. You mentioned Keegan, so Robert Keegan's theory of adult development, uh, which has actually been really impactful to me over the last year. Um, he has something called subject-object theory within his theory that kind of just, I don't know what it was, but it just clicked with me finally last year. Um, and we can kind of, uh, circle back on that, but, um, there are others too. Obviously people have heard of like Ken Wilber's integral theory, there's spiral dynamics, there's Kohlberg, there's, I mean, there's so Fowler, there's so many of these, you know, whether it's needs based or, um, or faith based or psychological development, like you name it, there are all these different, you know, theories that focus. I think when Ken Wilber synthesized everything, he literally had like over a hundred different human development theories, like scattered across his apartment at the I time. I know there were that many. That's amazing. Yeah. He, <laughs> he apparently sourced and synthesized all of them. Um, but a lot of people have heard, you know, Maslow and, and Keegan seems to be pretty famous now too, but, um, <clears throat> the one that has resonated with me the most has been Suzanne Cook-Reuter's ego development theory. And I didn't come across this for years into my full-time journey on slow even. Uh, but once I did and I read through everything about like how the theory was created and, and all the different stages and things like that, it, it, it resonated in a way that was shockingly similar to my own journey up to that point. So there are a couple of reasons why I like ego development theory. One is that I, I hadn't known about it, so it, it couldn't have been like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? In terms of like using it, <laughs> using it as a map to guide my life and, and living according to the map. It was like, uh, oh, I discovered this after the fact and yeah, wow, it, it really aligns. Yep. Yeah. So, so that, that was a benefit because there, there's a lot of instances where you can discover a theory and then try to live according to the theory, right? Um, the other reason I like it is because uh, Suzanne Kagreuter is a Harvard-trained um, semanticist and linguist, I believe. And so everything for her is language-based. And her focus, instead of it being like needs like Maslow or any of these other theories, hers is based on ego development. And, that's, and that kind of breaks down into like how you can take perspective and how you make meaning in life. Like those are two big areas of, of what she means when she talks about ego. But the reason, the other reason the theory is interesting is because it's empirically based. So, so many other theories are developed with the theory first, and then they try to go out and get data to validate the theory. Mm -hmm. Whereas for her, what she did was she does, um, she calls them sentence completion tests. And so basically you have these like little stems on a sentence, like, like I, I'm kind of making these up right now, but it's like my, my perfect life is, and then it's like blank. And then you write in the words of like how you would describe that or like the perfect boss is blank. And like you, you write in the words. And I think there are like 36 of these on her, on her test, but then it's coded by people who are trained in this to be able to say, um, you know, you're at this stage or that stage or whatever, based on the language that you're using. And mm -hmm. at this point she's done, I think she's done over 15,000 
of these mm. sentence completion tests with people. Wow. And it took her a number of years initially to be able to, because again, she started with the data before she had the theory. So she's, mm-hmm. she had all these, these, uh, results. And what she did was she looked for the themes and patterns among all the results. And that is what allowed her to create the structure of eco development theory and all the different stages and things mm-hmm. like that. So, mm-hmm. um, I, this is kind of a long winded way to say no, this, why this, yeah. this, is, this, this is also, it's, it's the same approach that Brenny Brown takes, I think with her research It's called gr- grounded, grounded theory approach, yep. I think is the, yeah. is the, yeah, I think term. you're right. Yeah. So that, that's always been interesting to me because so many other theories are theory first data second. Um, Mm -hmm. so all of that combined with my own lived experience of having matched up to, to her, um, her system so well, like it all kind of pointed toward this just resonance that I, I didn't feel with any theory up to that point in time. Um, and so once I discovered that, I guess in terms of how that relates to what I call slow stage four, which is the embodying wisdom piece. So I've kind of covered what I consider slow stage one, which is intentional living. And these stages mm-hmm. are arbitrary, right? These are just the stages that I've gone through personally. So some mm-hmm. people might already be on board with some of these things or do them in a different order. Mm-hmm. Um, you name it. But, uh, for me, it was stage one was intentional living, which opened up the space to be able to go into stage two, which was life purpose. And d- does your stage one map onto the beginning of the post-conventional stage in it in does? Yeah. 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 Okay. So I've actually, I do have a post on the site where I, uh, I map and compare the, what I call the slow stages to her ego development theory stages. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy how it aligns. So basically my crisis was that initial shift of, of questioning the things in the conventional stage of, of life. The other thing she talks about that in, in learning all about psychological development or some people call it vertical development, um, it has just opened my eyes, not only to my own life journey, but how other people are going through life. And it gives you just so much more self-compassion and mm-hmm. compassion with other people too, to understand that. Mm-hmm. And she, she very much stress, stresses this, that it's not, when people talk about psychological development theories, there's stage theories, and then there's like non-stage theories and things like that. Hers is a stage theory, but people get in the habit of saying higher or lower. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm higher, more developed um, than you, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is funny because that's, uh, that's a, some, that's like someone a that would say that would say three. that, <laughs> right. Would say that at a lower level because you're using it in a way that puffs yourself up and gives you a, a superior sense of identity and ego Busted. and things like that. Yeah. The other thing she has is something called a baptism, which is learning about a theory and just holding it at the level of your mind, but not actually embodying it, integrating it, living it from your actual lived experience of reality. So there's Mm -hmm. a big difference because, I mean, I think we've all come across people that, especially with Ken Wilber's work over the last, you know, several decades where people learn about integral theory and then they automatically place themselves at the, at the end of integral theory, right? (laughs) Oh, I'm second tier, third tier, you know, teal, whatever, whatever it is now in terms of like the highest level of integral theory. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so my crisis essentially and all of those questions that I started asking myself were that period of kind of breaking through what she calls the watershed of the conventional stages. And she talks about how Western society develops people essentially like the adult stage of Western mm-hmm. culture and society is like stage four in her model, which is that last stage of conventional development. Mm-hmm. And that what's interesting is that is pre self questioning. Mm-hmm. So that stage is literally mm-hmm. like the end result of the, uh, socialization and conditioning of society and culture mm-hmm. and it's pre self questioning. And right now I actually just watched one of her podcasts recently. And she says still only about 20% of people start to go into those post-conventional, all those post-conventional stages. So it's still that only still like, sounds, a, 
generous to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But keep, but keep in mind, each one, you know, each one's kind of a filter for the next level, right? Uh-huh. So if yep. you consider all the back half post-conventional stages, that's 20% of people. And then, you know, each one, it goes down further, further and further. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so my, my stuff kind of maps onto that of all that questioning, shifting from, I tell people like my identity was my LinkedIn profile back then. Everything in my life was externally focused and that's very much stage four type of stuff where all of your energy is, you know, focused outward. And then you make this shift, right? You start asking, you start going through that self-questioning and you start to make this shift into more of the internal focus. And that's what kind of gets you into some of the post-conventional um, stages and work like that. But, but yeah, it's kind of, it, it, it's funny because it follows her model almost to the T of stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. Um, and so in, in a nutshell, what happened was intentional living to life purpose for me. And then I started getting more into psychology because this is like, get to know thyself, all of those things, or Ramana Maharshi's who am I self-inquiry, um, things like that. But when you initially ask the question, who am I, you start at the level of your psychology. So you start doing like, you know, Myers-Briggs tests and Enneagram <laughs> and, and disc and strengths finder and like all uh-huh, of these things, uh-huh. which is a helpful phase because yeah. you start to realize, uh, how you're wired at, at the level of your psychology and how it's different from other people. And that's, that can be a very helpful and beneficial thing to realize the diversity of human psychologies. Right. Uh, but then if you start going long enough, so I consider all of that stuff in terms of human psychology, biology, neuroscience, all of these types of things, uh, stage three. And initially that's where my model ended because that was the level of psychological development that I was at at that point in time. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until a couple years later where I realized all of the stuff that you would call spirituality, which to me isn't woo woo at all. It's what is beyond mind. Mm-hmm. So whether you call that being or awareness or presence, or, uh, you know, this is what gets into non-duality and all of those types of things, anything that's beyond your mind, that's what I consider stage four, which is timeless wisdom and how to embody that. Like, so it's, it's not about just knowing those at a conceptual intellectual level, mm-hmm. you know, cause that would still be, <laughs> this is what, this is what a lot of people don't get. But if you read a book about spirituality, the act of reading and thinking about those ideas is a stage. It might be a stage four book in terms of my model, but what you're doing in your actual life is a stage three thing because it's all at the level of your psychology. Mm-hmm. You're playing with the concepts in your mind. You're chewing on them psychologically um, things like that. And it's not until you embody that and can actually live from that perspective, um, where it becomes a stage four thing. So, mm. um, that's, that's kind of on the bleeding edge of like where I've been the last couple of years is getting into really dissecting my own socialization and conditioning that gets into like the lottery of birth, um, and, and free will and, and concepts like that. Um, but, uh, that's been each, each stage seems to get more fascinating than the prior one. It's like reality. You, it's this realization that reality is stranger than fiction in so many ways. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's kind of what's been consuming me at the moment. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Like progressive layers of an onion. Um, yeah. well, let, let's go into the, the, the lottery of birth. Cause I think that's a fascinating topic as well. Um, I think it was initially Warren Buffett. He, he termed the ovarian lottery. I think that was at least like where it got popularized. Yeah. Um, how has that concept impacted your perspective or, or, or shifted your, your thinking? 
Yeah, so this this idea, uh, Warren Buffett popularized it from a thought experiment from John Rawls, and it's originally called like the original the, position or veil of ignorance. Of, yeah, right. I, I learned that in philosophy at university. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the veil of ignorance <laughs> thought experiment. And um, and then uh, I can't remember if I came across it that way or there's another guy who's done a lot of work on this. Uh, his name is Raul Martinez, and he has a book called Creating Freedom. And part one of his book is all about the lottery of birth. Um, and, and its implications and things like that. But um, the thought experiment from Warren Buffett, for those who haven't heard of it, is the idea that imagine you're going to be born in 24 hours and you have the power to design society however you want. The only problem is you have to pick one out of 8 billion human lottery balls randomly to then live that life. So obviously the odds are really low that you're going to draw the lottery ball for your current self in that society in 24 hours. So given that you could literally, you know, be anybody, you could, you could choose, you know, something in a third world country or extreme poverty or a war zone, or you name it. Um, the idea is how would you design society knowing that you could get any lottery ball? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that makes people think about, you know, oh, well, I would want to minimize my losses, right? I would want to design society in a way that no matter what I drew, it wouldn't be that terrible of a life. Um, and then you would still want the people who got the quote unquote, you know, winning lottery balls to still be able to strive and make society better for others and things like that. But the, but the big thing it makes you realize is that one, you didn't choose <laughs> your own lottery ball to begin with. Um, although after countless conversations on Twitter, this is getting me into people having me look into reincarnation and transmigration and past life memories and all these other things. But my personal experience at this moment, and maybe this will evolve over time, right? Maybe this will be like a stage five or something. <laughs> but uh, but my current experience of life when I did this was, okay, I'm going to dissect my lottery ticket or my lottery ball. How did I become me in the first place? Because once you go through the questions of who am I psychologically, you know, how did I get my personality type? Where did this come from? Why do I prioritize purpose so much? Why couldn't I have been happy with, you know, a high paying job and salary and just kept doing that forever? Why do I prioritize passion and fun so much? Uh, Why do I not prioritize money as much? Like all of these things that you start to learn about yourself, you start to ask, how did I ever get that way in the first place? And so I started just dissecting everything I could about myself in terms of when I say lottery of birth. Now I kind of refer to the amalgamation of your nature and nurture combined to create the brain and mind that you have. So essentially, I went through and and asked myself, honestly, as much as I could, given my current level of psychological development, I asked myself, you know, did I choose all these things about my nature in terms of did I choose my my biological sex? Did I choose a single neuron in my brain, a a single cell in my body? Um, You know, so you go through all those nature pieces and then you ask all the nurture pieces of did I choose my parents? Did I choose my geographic location of where I was born on Earth? Did I choose the time period in which I was born on Earth? Did I choose the economic environment that I was born into? Did I choose uh, my parents' level of wealth and education that then dictates children's level of education? And since <laughs> this was another deep dive I did into social mobility or socio- socioeconomic mobility of, you know, a lot of people aren't changing so- socioeconomic levels from what their parents were. So you start to see, and now there's just an overwhelming amount of data and research that supports the lottery of birth in terms of, um, so I've mentioned uh, Raul Martinez's book, Creating Freedom, but David Eagleman's book, Live Wired, talks about how, from a neuroscience and biological perspective, how 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 you're raised growing up has long-term lifetime implications in terms of like the downstream effects of that as an adult. So we oh, yeah. think about 
Yeah. We think about childhood as this thing that like you live and then you like leave behind and you refer to it as almost like a different lifetime. Like, oh yeah, when I was a kid, but that doesn't impact me anymore or whatever else. But I'm with you every day. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the reality of, you know, all psycho psychological things have correlates in biology and, and neuroscience. And, and luckily we're uncovering more and more of these because it gives you a newfound respect and again, it's compassion for why we are the way we are and why other people are the way they are. And the whole idea of if you had been living that other person's life and seen life through their eyes and their brain and mind, you would understand why they're acting the way that they are. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it gives you a whole new level of empathy and theory of mind and things like that to be able to, to really make sense of your own life and others' life. But for me, what I did going through that was I just concluded that I didn't choose or control any of those things. As far as I know, I don't have any past life memories. I don't remember being born or choosing to exist in the first place. Um, and, uh, and I mean, my first memory, I can't even remember my first memory in this life. <laughs> and they call that, that's not uncommon. They call that childhood or infantile amnesia where most, most kids don't, or most humans don't have a memory until they're two to four years old. And in some cases it can be off and on memory until you're even 10, where it's like, not that you don't remember anything, but that's like fuzzy or vague or that you remember some things, but like gaps of other time periods. Um, and that's, I feel like that's kind of what I have where, um, you know, I don't remember, I don't remember my first memory or being born or anything like that. Mm. Yeah. It, I mean, this raises so many interesting questions. And one of them that I thought about a fair bit is like, what is it that we can actually take credit for, if anything, in this life, given everything that you just said? And, and also, um, not only putting ourselves in the shoes of, I mean, there's extreme examples out there of like, if you were born as Adolf Hitler and you had the exact same DNA genetics life experiences, you would have done the, the exact same things. And it's very humbling and quite like mm -hmm. disturbing in, in, in some ways. Um, but yeah, I, I'm curious, where have you landed on the question of like, is there anything that you think or you believe that you can take credit for or is there nothing there? it's, it's tough. Right. And it's, and this is another thing where, and this obviously gets into free will and a number of other things where mm -hmm. it's until you kind of see this and have these realizations for yourself, like in your own lived experience. Yeah. I've had so many conversations with people about this type of stuff, but it bounces off of a lot of people as like an idea or a belief or something like that. Like, you know, it goes into their mind and then it kind of shoots back out versus like a realization where you're, seeing something for the first time or seeing clearly or, um, understanding something in a new way that you didn't understand before. It's, it's hard to explain, but it's different from just like a new idea or a belief that you just put in your mind. Right. And then live mm -hmm. according to, this is more of like that realization kind of thing. But for me, for me, it realized, I realized that I can't take credit for all of those things, nor can I take blame for them. Right. Um, and then you get into obviously all the societal implications of, well, what about criminals and criminal justice system and all these types of things. But this is where Raul Martinez's book is really good. And Robert Sapolsky talks about some of these things too. He actually has a book on free will coming out later this year, but his hmm. book, uh, behave, which is all about the biology of behavior. And he's got a bunch of, uh, lectures and Ted talks on YouTube and things like that. Um, his, his work kind of aligns with all of this too, in terms of, um, like, yeah, if you were living that life, you would have acted the same way. And the only difference is you, if you were living that life, you would understand it versus as an outside observer, it's harder, obviously, to put yourself in someone's shoes. 
Um, but all of this gives you a newfound compassion. It's like a universal and unconditional com compassion for yourself, right? It's mm -hmm. like a lot of people think a lot of this would be li uh, limiting, but I've found it to be liberating. It like changes your relationship with your mind. You have more awareness of your mind as like an object and you're mm -hmm. like, you no longer identify with your thoughts as yourself or your mind as yourself or your identity as your ideas. It gives you some distance where you can now witness or observe your ego at work and your inner workings and things like that and how you make sense of things and gives you some detachment where you can now, because you have awareness of it, it changes your relationship with what you're aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it does get into obviously <laughs> in, in terms of for anyone that's wondering about the societal implications of, well, then, you know, life would be like the purge and everyone would just like do whatever they want and there'd be rioting in the streets and things like that. Um, the, the thing is that of course you still have to take dangers. You still have to remove dangers from society, but what it does is it eliminates the myth of ultimate responsibility that that person is to 100% solely be blamed for, for what they did. Um, it does not remove accountability in the sense of we can point to this person as being like a danger or something. But what it does is you reframe retribution instead of like you're to blame and therefore you should be punished kind of thing to a more of a compassionate understanding of, okay, you're accountable because you did this and, and we need to take care of it. But you then focus on rehabilitation to the extent that you can. And there are other countries that in Europe and things like that, that you may be more familiar with that, um, are taking more of a rehabilitation approach versus a retribution approach. But, um, I call this, I call this the strangest thing. And this was a realization over the last couple of years where, you know, all this lottery of birth stuff, if you really had 0% choice or control in the brain or mind that you got through the lottery of birth, at what point are you, you, and at what point do we assume people should take 100% sole responsibility <laughs> if they had 0% choice or control in the brain or mind that they got, right? So it literally uh -huh. flips. It goes from 0% to at some point, and, and a lot of it's age-based, right? It's like 18 years old or 21 years old or whatever. We yeah. assume that that person then is 100% solely responsible for everything that they do. Mm -hmm. um, but but I kind of think about, and a lot of people say like, uh, you can't control the cards that you're dealt, but you can control how you play the hand. But my realization now is you can't control the cards that you were dealt and how you're going to play the hand is, is based on the mind that you got dealt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's kind of this, uh, it's this paradoxical thing that you don't realize your conditioning until you've already been conditioned. There's no mm. bypassing human conditioning. Mm. Um, the only case I've seen of that, and David Eagleman talks about this in his book, live wired, um, is like a feral child that didn't get exposure to like the human world. Um, and, and so you can have like a genetically normal brain, but if you're not exposed, if your brain's not unpacked through the environment and, uh, culture and society and things like that, it's not going to develop in critical periods of neurological, like brain development. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, the reality is there's no bypassing socialization. It's a thing that has to happen. Everybody is other created before they're ever self-created. Um, and you have an identity by the time you're able to question your identity. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's like this, it's all of this is this mm -hmm. paradoxical thing, right? Where it's mm -hmm. like an order of events that things have to happen before other things can happen. Um, but, uh, I don't, I, yeah, it's tough to explain, but it's, I've found it to be a liberating, uh, a lot of liberating realizations over the last few years. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting territory. It, that question that you just shared reminds me of the question of like when you when you breathe in or when you eat food at what point does the air become you 
or your skin like where you know where is the barrier between mm. yourself and the world and it, it kind of harks back to that John Muir quote that you mentioned earlier and there is this insight I got back from a meditation retreat quite recently and one of the the invitations was to explore like like what is the self that you think that you are and what are all of these different identities and when you actually try and look for them that they're not there it's like a bar of soap that you try and like squeeze and it slips out <laughs> somewhere else <laughs> um yeah it's it's very interesting territory and it also sounds very abstract and obscure until you, like you say, you have some of these, these more direct experiences. Yeah. Um, I recommend a, a lot of this, you know, a lot of people default to like the Ramana Maharshi self-inquiry, who am I question where asking that question at the level of your mind eventually leads you beyond mind. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the intellectual approach or the conceptual approach gets a bad rap. Um, but I've found that you can actually have a lot of these realizations on that psychological level. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not going to lead you to the same place. Well, they, they're like pointers to the same place, but they're, I think they're an equally important phase that more people should embrace and go through versus just trying to bypass that phase and just go mm -hmm. straight to like the spiritual stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't know if it's like dipping a toe in the water or how to describe it, but, um, but I've found them, I found the intellectual stuff to still be critically important. Mm -hmm. And shouldn't be something that is kind of put on the back burner just because, you know, other people say, well, that's just the conceptual stuff. It's not important. No, um, I mean, I think, I think it is one of the most venerated and valued approaches. Um, I think Ramana Maharshi talked about having earnest, relentless curiosity is like the key in the path towards realization, as he put it, and, and having those insights. And there's another practice around, I think it's like neti neti or like not this, not this. It's yep. like, I'm not that, I'm not that. And you keep on going and going and going until eventually there's a place where you just find that stillness, you find that awareness. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think it's very valid. Well, th this is kind of interestingly related to, you posted a book summary on The Extended Mind, which is a mm -hmm. book that I'm reading right now. I'm really loving it. Um, I'm like halfway through. And what are some aspects, feel free to post spoilers, <laughs> but what are some aspects that resonated with you? What did you enjoy about it? Yeah, I, I recommend the book. Uh, I, I literally just finished this the, in the last week or two. And I reached out to you, I think, when I was reading like the first chapter <laughs> because uh -huh. it immediately dove into like the different types of cognition, uh, mm -hmm. situated cognition, embodied cognition. And, uh, and they, she mentioned interoception. And I was like, oh, I got to make sure that Johnny is aware of this book. But uh, the reason I like the book and why I recommend it to people is because it, uh, it challenges the, the modern myth that that everything is going on just up here in your head, in your brain and mind, in that you're kind of like a floating head, you know, going through the world. Um, and it gives you a newfound perspective and respect on um, all the different ways that you are living life. It's not just from, you know, your head or your mind or your brain. So she goes through uh, different ways. Uh, and the author's name is Annie Murphy Paul, for those who want to look up the book uh, or the book summary. But, um, but what she does is she goes through different ways of like thinking with your body, which obviously ties in perfectly with all the nervous system mastery stuff. And then she goes through thinking with your surroundings and then thinking with others and your relationships. Um, and I think my favorite chapter actually, I think is like chapter seven. She talks about this is in thinking with uh, your relationships and specifically with experts. And the entire chapter is basically debunking the whole idea of like imitation is bad. 
Mm. Um, and that we shouldn't be copying people and things like that. And she goes through all this research about, and this, this aligns with everything we've talked about in terms of like, you're, no one is just self-created from scratch. There's no such thing as that. Like you would be that if you tried to, you know, to raise a human from scratch like that, they would be a feral child because they wouldn't have exposure to all these other things in the world. So, um, everybody is other created and we only have context of self in context of others. So you have this, you know, ongoing dynamic of everything. Uh, there's another concept, this is outside of the book, but, um, another concept called polarity thinking. So instead of like this either, or it's a both and approach to many things in life. And she actually, Bina Sharma, uh, is one of the, the experts in polarity thinking that I've come across, but she uses something that you might like for uh, your course, which is the idea of breathing in and breathing out. It's the most simple polarity that exists that we all experience is the simple in breath and out breath. Um, but this kind of relates to so many things in life instead of, you know, arguing about, is it either this or that a lot of things are both. And, you know, it's the yin and the yang. So, um, you need to have both in order to be able to, to understand things with a, with a greater, more holistic perspective. Um, but, uh, but the, but the chapter about imitation is just fascinating because it reminded me of, uh, how Ken Wilber learned to write. So Ken Wilber's authored, you know, 20 plus books at this point in his life. And he learned to write by hand writing, I believe, word for word, Alan Watts books. So no way. literally, yeah, he was, a, he considered himself a thinker, I believe, and never considered himself a writer. So to teach himself how to write, he hand copied wow. Alan Watts books. And then what wow. happens through the process of imitation, this is why imitation gets such a bad rap is through yeah. the process of imitation, which we're already doing anyway, you know, mimetically or mimetic desire, Rene Girard's whole thing, or, uh, and humans are like copiers uh, to, a, to an extent. But what happens is through that process of imitation, you eventually find your own original novel voice, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you kind of, it's like a whole transcend and include idea of like, you start with imitation, but then you move beyond that mm -hmm. and you synthesize that into something new and creative. Um, but I thought that chapter was great because she just does, the whole book is a bunch of myth busting essentially about, you know, all the different things that influence us in terms of how we actually think. Mm, I love that. Um, wow. That, my respect for Ken Wilber, I, I was Googling him recently and a, an image popped up of him probably in his twenties, like ripped six pack, sitting in full Lotus, having published his like 10th book or whatever, <laughs> like, <laughs> just like an absolute ubermensch. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I, I'm really excited to finish, to finish the book. I think it's, there's such interesting ideas in there and it's, it's also, I'm, I've been playing with chat GPT recently as well and seeing that as well as like another extension of our mind and mm -hmm. the way in which we ask questions that it's, it's yet another way in which we, our, our minds or our intellectual capacity is, is extended. Um, yeah. I wonder if we're all going to get better at like Socratic dialogue or Socratic questioning from all the AI tools. So. Like yeah. we're going to get really good at like <laughs> keyword querying and prompting things and like asking very specific questions. And then the answer leads us to better questions. And, um, yeah. yeah, so I have a lot of hope that those types of tools can be aids in terms of like catalyzing human development. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's, um, I mean, there's, I saw like a $300,000 a year job posting for a prompt engineer and it's yeah. essentially like asking good questions, which is kind of what we've been talking about all of this time. And so if, if one of the side benefits of, of chat GPT and these other tools is empowering people to ask better questions and realizing the importance of, of questions and the context in them, um, it's, yeah, that would be a great thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is the the fourth area that I wanted to touch on, which is actually very related. Is this idea of interdisciplinary wisdom? And you're you're honestly one of probably the most well-read people that I've I've come across, certainly that I've interviewed on this podcast. Um, and I also think of myself as being interdisciplinary. And um, Maria Popova, who you referenced earlier, she has this idea of combinatorial creativity, which is something that I really resonate with as well. What are some things that you've learned about the art of synthesizing and 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 how do you think you you know came to be such a uh, uh ferocious synthesizer like what was it about your conditioning that led you to <laughs> to synthesize in this way it's a that's that's a great question and it, it has a bunch of disparate disparate pieces that i think just connected eventually that i didn't realize until they actually happened or upon reflection i was able to connect the dots so mm-hmm. uh in terms of like growing up um you know i was always a, a good student and things like that but i always got bad grades in reading <laughs> mm-hmm. which is funny given what i do now but it was because i read so physically slowly mm-hmm. which now i think is actually I'm actually very thorough and kind of methodical and, and, and chewing on it. Like I could read a sentence like 10 times, but it's because I'm rereading it and chewing on it and thinking about it while I'm, while I'm reading, like in the midst of the act of reading itself. But mm. in grade school, you know, I would never finish time tests or exams on time and right. I always get bad grades in reading. So I grew up with this perception that I was bad at reading. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. And now, <laughs> and now I'm basically like a full-time reader, but I would, I yeah. never would have considered myself a reader pre existential crisis. I mean, I read some books during my marketing career about like marketing or advertising or human psychology, because there's such an overlap between marketing and psychology. But, um, I would have never considered myself a reader until the last eight years or so. in in terms Mm -hmm. of this whole idea of just, you know, trying to figure out how and why to live. Um, and so, uh, the other thing is when I quit my career, even I had done enough of the internal work and purpose finding work and things like that to have a sense of direction of where I wanted to head. But I could not have told you my purpose in a single sentence five years ago. I don't even think I had come across the terms synthesis or synthesizer or synthesist or any or synthesizing mind or any of these types of things from Maria or Howard Gardner or, or a number of other people who talk about them. They, I just didn't even have the words to articulate that yet about myself and how my mind just naturally seemed to work. So when I came across those things, um, same same with me, I came across combinatorial creativity from Maria and I think Kirby Ferguson has something like uh, everything is a remix. Um, there are a number of other kind of similar concepts. Is it is it Matt Ridley or someone that calls mm-hmm. it like idea Ideas, sex? Ha- having sex, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Matt <laughs> yeah. So that all those are, you know, similar kind of synonyms for the same type of thing. But at, at some point I had discovered enough of these things where I, I started to realize, oh, that's just how my mind naturally seems to work without me even trying to to force it to work that way. It, it seems like I have a synthesizing mind. It just is just what it what it does on its own. Um, and then the interdisciplinary side of it, again, I didn't know the term multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. There's now one called arc disciplinary. Um, but uh, I didn't have this terminology to be able to even articulate this. And I just found myself in this in this whole, you know, question and answer of life type of thing of just going out and searching questions and trying to find answers. It just naturally led me down all those different paths I mentioned earlier in terms of everything from biology to psychology to philosophy to spirituality, you name it. Um, And I just started connecting dots between them because I would read something from one book about, let's say, spirituality. 
And then I would read something similar in psychology and start to connect the dots between them. And Mortimer mm -hmm. Adler has a book called How to Read a Book. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, he talks about being able to come to terms with authors and uh, approach reading with what he calls dialect dialectical objectivity. And what that means is you withhold judgment while you're reading as much as you mm. can. Um, and then you try to take, you try to connect the dots between authors and between books or any types of learning resources. You try to connect the dots by taking all the writers and moving them to match your terminology. Because in this, this obviously makes a lot of sense when you start talking about mind and consciousness and being and, uh, you know, self, lowercase self, uppercase S self, you know, all these different terms that all these different authors use. And your job as the reader, he puts it on the reader to say, your job is to know whether, you know, author A and author B are talking about the same thing using different mm -hmm. words, or if they're using the same word in different ways. And, and really what I've fig figured out is that this is just something that comes through quantity over time. So the more you read, the better you get at reading. And the more you're able to do this coming to terms with authors and different pieces of content. And the more your mind naturally synthesizes things together. So it's, it's one of those, again, another paradox kind of, of it's not quality versus quantity. It's quality that comes as a byproduct of quantity of doing it a ton over time. Mm -hmm. And kind of the more inputs that you're putting into your mind, the more they naturally start to connect over time. And you start to mm -hmm. say, you start to see things while you're reading and be able to say, oh, that matches everything else I've seen up to this point in time. Or importantly, that's completely different. And why is that? Am I not understanding the terminology correctly? Um, mm. Am I understanding it correctly? But they just have a completely different perspective. Uh, and this kind of goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation when I mentioned transformative learning. Um, because uh, actually, I can't remember where I was going with that. But, uh, <laughs> but it's an important concept that everyone should check out. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you just get better, uh, the more you do it. Yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that. And I think that's been my approach. I mean, starting a podcast called Curious Humans, like it's basically the same thing. It's like my outlet, my vehicle to I guess, justify, um, reading and talking to a bunch of people on very diverse topics and finding the common threads, um, that, that emerge. Um, beautiful. I, I, are there any dots that you feel like you've connected for yourself or, or like slow hunches, which is, I think another one of Matt Ridley's term, um, as a result of all of this reading, like any kind of maybe like novel connections that you feel like you've made? I think, uh, so in terms of like purely novel things, this is another byproduct of just doing it a lot. And a good example of that is like studying Ikigai off and on for five years. Mm -hmm, I synthesized right. everything that I could find, you know, in the world on the subject, essentially read five plus books on the topic, read a bunch of research papers, like literally, you know, you've reached the end of the internet when you're reading like textbooks on something or, uh -huh. <laughs> or research papers, or, or you've ventured into like web 1.0, like not like eighties or nineties websites. Uh, and that's, and that's when, you know, you've reached the end of a exhausting, a, a research process on a subject, which is not uncommon for me to get to that point. But, um, but what happens is for instance, like for Ikigai, it led to the point of, okay, I, I had all the pieces. I started putting them together, figured out a process and framework that worked for me personally. And then that led to something novel, which was the Ikigai 2.0 concept itself, right? So I synthesized everything I could, everything existing that I could. And then the output eventually over time was a novel framework that I, that I proposed myself and that I used personally to find purpose myself. So that's not 
that's not an uncommon output in terms of the more you do this, the more dots you connect, the more you're starting to like question things, myth bust things, realize mm-hmm. disparities bet- between things. And then mm-hmm. in some cases, take it to the next level where mm-hmm. there's a novel or original output. It's kind of like the whole idea of imitation, right? Synthesis in a way is taking existing inputs, putting them all into your mind and connecting dots in new ways that then leads to something new. So um, it kind of starts there with existing stuff and it leads in some cases to a novel output. But um, yeah. That's great. And that's, as you were speaking, that kind of resonates with what I've done with with NSM and like the rise out of reactivity framework, which was like the thing that emerged as a result of reading a bunch of different books, papers, literature. And it's like, oh, this is how my mind is making sense of this. And this is a, a way to convey it to other people. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then what's interesting, right, is that your novel concept or something novel that I might come up with or someone else comes up with is then an existing input <laughs> into right. someone else yeah. creating something it, novel off a, of that, a right? Beautiful web. Yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, um, would it be all right to ask a few rapid fire questions and then we'll, we'll wrap this up? Yeah, of course. Okay. So question number one, what is one idea or perspective that you hold that you don't have proof for? Hmm. I'd have to go with the lottery of birth on this one. Um, it's one of those things I've had people say, you know, it's not falsifiable. Uh, you can't prove it. You can't prove reincarnation doesn't exist, all those types of things. But if I could put one thing on a billboard, it would be Hmm. like, like the lottery of birth thought experiment essentially. So I have to go with that. Okay. Nice. Um, what is your current definition of a slow life? Mm. So this is actually a great question. Do, do my, do my answers have to be rapid too? <laughs> no, take your time. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so, uh, this is important because a lot of people think slow living means doing everything in life as slowly as possible, living in slow motion or doing less in life, like trying to do as little as possible in life or, uh, being technology free or, you know, all these different, or hashtag slow living on Instagram. Like it's got, like, it's a visual aesthetic that you have to decorate your home like, or something like that, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is fine from an, an aesthetic perspective, but I'm much more interested in the actual lifestyle. But, um, for me, it doesn't have to do with any of those things. For me, it is like synonyms for slow living would be like paced living or purposeful living or deeper living or holistic living or mindful living. Um, unbusy living. So for me, it's much more about the pace of life uh, versus doing anything as slowly as possible. The idea Mm -hmm. is to kind of put the brakes on a little bit of this, you know, glorification of busy uh, Mm -hmm. in order to be able to get more pace in life. And there's another thing I talk about where it's like, it's not about having a busy life, but it is about having a full life. Mm -hmm. So you're figuring out the things that you want to downshift on or get rid of. And so you can go big on those other things in life. Yeah, I love that. That sounds like uh, intentionality would be another word, I guess, that fits in there Mm -hmm. too. Beautiful. What is one underappreciated book that we haven't talked about that changed your life in a positive way? Oh, I feel like I have a list of these books and I should probably have them like ready at hand. Um, I don't, I just mentioned the first one that comes to mind. I don't know that it was life-changing for me, but I do think it's underappreciated. And that book is The Quest of the Simple Life by I believe W.J. Dawson. Hmm. It's an older book and he talks about moving from the city to the country, Um, but it's beautifully written in terms of like great writing. It's like, it's like the, the pull on your heartstrings, emotional kind of approach to simple living. 
mm. um, and, and how to downshift into that. Uh, that's, that's probably an underrated book that a lot of people haven't heard of. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough because the right book is really like book recommendations no longer make a ton of sense to me because it's really based on where that person is in their life and what's going to be most impactful for them in that moment. Right. Um, because you know, something probably their stage of development as well. I imagine you could curate reading lists that would help people to, to get to the next stage potentially. Yeah. And that's actually, so I ended up doing that on slow for each of the four stages. I ended up bucketing the, the books that kind of resonate with those concepts by stage. Mm. Uh, so people can kind of navigate the the hundred plus book summaries on the site that way and make more sense mm. of them. But, um, but yeah, it really, it, it's the whole idea of, you know, no one steps in the same river twice because it's not the same river and you're not the same person. No one steps in the same book twice because you're not the mm. same person. Therefore it's not the same book. So your mind is constantly changing and even rereading a book. Like I recently, um, I revisited my notes from Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth, which I read early on in the journey. Um, mm -hmm. And then I actually, I read The Power of Now years after that. And everything made so much more sense to me. I thought <laughs> I got it. You know, I thought I got it when I first read it, but then I was like, oh, okay. Now yeah. I feel like I actually, I at least get it more. Um, I wouldn't say I completely 100% get it. I'm not enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, subject and object have not merged in my mind, but, uh, but in terms of, uh, of, it, it's just a matter of following again, following your curiosity and picking up the book that just seems to be pulling your energy in that direction at that moment. And then mm. following where that book leads you next and pulling on those threads to the next thread. Mm, I love that. I've, I've read Alan Watts's wisdom of insecurity, maybe five or six times and had this, the same experience of like each time it's like, radically different to my, my memory of it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I need to do that with, uh, the Tao Te Ching. I actually oh, want to sure. read, yeah, I want to read like five different translations side by side. And mm -hmm. cause I think that would kind of be fascinating too, like verse by verse, read like five different translations and see, and then I want to kind of create a Frankenstein version where, oh. <laughs> where I choose, like, it's like a choose your own adventure of, I uh -huh. select like the most impactful verses from all the different translators and create a, like a synthesized version of like five or 10 different translations. I, I bet you could get GPT to help, help you do that. I, I, I read, um, Ursula Le Guin's translation of it. I thought that was a, like pr probably the most poetic version that I found. Yeah. That's what I've heard. I've read to date. I've only read the Stephen Mitchell version, but I enjoyed it. And he has a bunch of notes too, which were helpful just in the margins and things like that about how to understand things. But, um, nice. but yeah. Beautiful. What is a belief or idea that you've updated or changed your mind on in recent months? Oh man. Um, I feel like so many, um, I mean, the biggest one would probably be free will, um, and, and realizing all of the things kind of impinging on our free will again, which people think is limiting, but for me has been liberating. Um, so I'd probably have to go with that one. And again, I think this is, this is a, this, this is psychological development based, right? So if like the way Suzanne cook Reuter describes ego development theory is like what you your stage is literally like your lived experience of reality, right? So it, it determines what you can see and critically what you can't see yet, at least. Um, and even how you make meaning based on each stage and how you interpret words. So even how you interpret the word meaning or interpret the word truth or perspective or any of these things, your interpretation of language changes at each stage. Mm. Um, so it's just kind of this, you know, continual unfolding and embracing, you know, whatever comes up, but, um, yeah. 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 That's, that's great. 
And then last question, what is your greatest aspiration for the impact of, of your work and slow might have in the years or decades to come? So I don't have any, you know, quantifiable or measurable goals that I have like have put numbers to or anything like that. For me, it's more a matter of, you know, making sure I'm still passionate and finding it purposeful, which to date, you know, five years in full time now hasn't decreased a bit. If anything, it's, it's increased, which is great. The spark of my crisis continues to give me fuel <laughs> and, and, and a part of that, a big part of that, right. Is like you pull on a thread and you uncover something new and it's like, that's really interesting. Let me dive into that. Like there, I feel like the, the, um, uh, the subject that I am now searching is like the art of living, which encompasses everything. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's like this, it's like this, uh, there's not an ability to exhaust the art of living. Like it'll, it'll keep me interested for the rest of my life probably. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm just watching it all unfold. Beautiful. I don't know yeah, if that answered. I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> no, it, it answered it perfectly. I mean, it's it's like um, James Cast's idea of the infinite game. It sounds like you're kind of you're you're playing that, which is, yeah, is be beautiful. What I what I I guess I would say in terms of like, I finally this happened like a, maybe a year or two ago. I was finally able to put my purpose into a single sentence, hmm. and the way that I describe it is that my purpose is synthesizing lifelong learning that catalyzes human development, and so I feel like that's what I've done through my own transformative learning journey over the last eight years since crisis. So individually, I feel like that's is a summation of what I've done. And then by sharing everything publicly, mm. I'm hoping that that is a catalyst for other people's lifelong learning and therefore their human development. Right? So this whole idea of transformative learning is the idea that adult learning pairs hand in hand with adult development. And the whole purpose of doing it is to have perspective transformation and to grow psychologically um, and to be a more holistic, deeper human. So, um, in terms of like the meta crisis, if people have heard like that term, or I think people are now calling it the poly crisis or perma crisis, there are a number of different terms for it. To me, it seems like the root cause, the generator function and Daniel Schmachtenberger's words or the, the number one problem, ultimate challenge to me for the last couple of years now has been our relationship with our minds. Um, and psychological development is and lifelong learning is what leads to the psychological development that gives you a new relationship with your mind. So in terms of kind of like a meta goal or something, it's the idea of continuing to do this lifelong learning that catalyzes not only my own, but others, uh, human development. Mm, beautifully put. And then what, what that brings up in me is I, I feel like I have a similar goal, um, but rather working with the nervous system, which I see as an extension or it basically the same as the mind in, in some ways, but coming at it from a more, um, I guess like a somatic perspective. Yeah. Um, and the questions of like what gets in the way of that development um, and, and how to kind of help people to unblock it. Yeah, I, I feel like that would be a good jumping off point for a round two if we were, <laughs> were to come back sometime. Yeah, totally. It seems like there are a lot of on ramps to the highway of human development, right? So yeah, it's like totally. I've kind of gone the the like lifelong learning approach and then you've gone the somatic, you know, nervous system approach. Other people go the psychedelic approach, which I think can be an aid uh, to development or like what Ken Weber would call like waking up, which can lead to growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, other people go straight into the spiritual side and and do the self inquiry side or whatever, but they're all kind of on ramps, right, to mm -hmm. to human development. So, yeah, amazing. Well, this has been so much fun. Um, where where can listeners learn more about your millions of book summaries, your work, um, <laughs> all, all the stuff that you're up to? What's the best place that you'd like to point people to? 
Yeah. So the best place is just to go to the slow website. It's S L O W W dot C O slow.co. And then, uh, to stay in the loop, the best way is the newsletter. So each week I send a, a newsletter called the slow Sunday newsletter, and that'll have the latest and greatest of the stuff I'm working on. And the, the most interesting curation of, of finds that I come across on the internet each week. Um, and then socially I'm most active on Twitter at slowco. Amazing. And, uh, for listeners, Kyle's newsletters are incredibly dense and wonderful and and I, I don't know how you write so much it's it's very impressive <laughs> <laughs> again I, i'd have to say i'm doing the ken wilber approach of uh, a lot of just pulling inputs from other people and then trying to make sense of it along the way <laughs> yeah amazing well i'd like to close with this line from rilke he said try to love the questions themselves and live them now perhaps you will then gradually without noticing it live your way into the answer so with that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Mm. Ooh, we saved the deepest question for last. Can I like think about this for 20 minutes? <laughs> no. <laughs> take, take your time. I can hit pause. <laughs> oh, the question that is most alive for me right now. I don't know... I don't know that I would be able, maybe the answer, maybe my question is that I don't know that I'd be able to come up with a single question. It's almost like, it's almost like a meta question of like, um, being open to whatever question is coming up in that moment. So it's like, um, there's a quote, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this came from Greg McKeon's, uh, essentialism book or, or somewhere else. I can't remember exactly who said it or Gary Keller or someone who wrote the one thing, I think, but it's like, if you, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just leave with this to make it easier or simpler. Um, if you don't know the most important thing, the most important thing is to figure out the most important thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the question is, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing right now? And if you don't know the most important thing, the most important thing is to figure out the most important thing. <laughs> Nicely done. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. It's been so much fun. Yeah. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.